If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And you can track through that all the various fascinating bits of not just the social history of the area, but the history of education in this country. That was Alan Johnson discussing the history of schooling in Britain. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with Alan Johnson, the former Labour MP and Cabinet Minister, who's currently presenting a new series on the history of schools on BBC Radio 4. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn, met up with him in London recently to find out more. So on today's podcast, I'm joined by the politician and author Alan Johnson, who is presenting a new series for BBC Radio 4. The 10-part series follows the story of one school in Camberwell in South London from its opening in 1884 right up to the present day. Why is following the story of one school a really interesting way to look at the history of Britain's education system more widely? Well, it's England and Wales, I suppose, so divorce uh, Scotland from this. It Because this school was set up in 1884, and we have the logbook of the first day when it opened, and it was very much a kind of philanthropic enterprise, so there was no universal education system. It was before the various acts of parliament that, that introduced that. And and it was in one of the poorest areas of London. And it opened just around the time when Booth, William Booth, was doing all his poverty maps that gauged the different levels of poverty around that area. And this area in Camberwell, framed by Wyndham Road on one area and Farmers Road on the other, was a very, very poor area. And so that was a great starting point and gave us the idea of let's follow the schools through because on that site has been a, a secondary modern, a comprehensive, when comprehensives were introduced in the 70s. Uh, it was a failed school. Uh, it was bombed during the Second World War, was rebuilt. It was failed and closed and reopened as an academy, then closed again uh, or succeeded by uh, the latest incarnation, which is the Ark All Saints Academy. So it's had two academizations, and you can track through that all the various fascinating bits of not just the social history of the area, but the history of education in this country. Looking at the outline for the series, I couldn't quite believe, as I moved through each episode, the, the amount of different incarnations that the, the school took on, as you explained there. Um, what were some of the key moments in the history of education that kind of uncovered with this story? Well, I think the most fascinating areas for me are in that late Victorian period when there is a realisation that uh, from Booth and others 
that these very poor areas uh, are breeding a kind of what they would call feral children, the poorest of the poor, they called them. And when Booth and his researchers went round these areas, they were very dismissive as to whether anything would ever change. And then along came this feeling that actually you can improve people's social conditions through education. And yes, you see very clearly as the story progresses that girls were meant to go off and do their sewing or whatever, and the boys were meant to go and be costermongers or work in the docks, which are nearby. But then gradually, the other most interesting period is gradually as that education takes effect, people realize that here are youngsters that could be doing much more, that are not realizing their potential. And then the Butler Education Act, which is a fascinating period of social history following the Beveridge Report, uh, and Butler introduces selective education, which you know, at the time wasn't controversial because the, every working class child was getting an education, be it up to age 15. So that was a fascinating period. And then comes the time when uh, education right across London was kind of pretty much a basket case. There are all the social problems of gangs on the estate. There's the move white working class kind of moving out and the new working class, perhaps poorest of the poor, though not quite you know, in the same as in Booth's day, were from the Caribbean and from other minority cultures. There's, there's that change around. Um, and we recalled the very first pupil who went to Oxbridge from this school. It was actually when it was Archbishop Michael Ramsey uh, comprehensive. And, you know, his kind of, he went to Trinity College, Cambridge, and that's all fascinating. So in the mix here, you've got the social history of that era of Southeast London. You mentioned there the Butler Act and the tripartite structure that it, it introduced to Britain. So you had grammars, secondary moderns, sec secondary technicals. I was intrigued to hear what your thoughts were about that system and its impact on Britain's schools. It was huge. Uh, the problem was, of course, that Butler wasn't implemented. So Butler was a great cross-party. Um, Butler's deputy was the Labour uh, uh, minister who went on to be Home Secretary, Tutor Ede, who was a teacher and a representative of the National Union of Teachers. He worked very closely with Butler. So it came from the coalition government of the war. But they said, the school leaving age, they up to 15, they should, it should go to 16 by the early 50s. That took until 1973. I left school at 15 in the 60s. Went up to 1973. It, they said it should go up to 18 by the early 60s. And education leaving age is now 18, but that's only come in over the last few years. These technical colleges were envisaged as being everywhere. And they only ever, unlike in Germany and Scandinavia, where technical education and vocational education was seen as you know, a huge, important part of education. Here, apart from a few exceptions, it never happened. So the issue about Butler is it was never implemented. And the other fascinating thing about Butler is he did consider, if you read the history books, abolishing private schools, abolishing the public schools. It was actually a period during the war when that could have happened and where where the public, because of rationing and all together during the war and all that and the greater feeling of equality, the public schools were losing their influence, uh, losing money. So he did consider actually taking that bold step, but he decided 
He had one fight with the churches because he was taking over church schools and there was controversy around that. He didn't want to open a second front. So that was probably the one chance for those people who do think our educational system is still skewered by class. That was one time to do it. So Butler looked at everything in the mix. You know, whatever you think of selective education now, at that stage, uh, as I say, the the idea that you could have this academic stream, you could have this vocational stream through technical colleges, and you should be in school until you were 18 not out on the streets at 14, which is the case when Butler set to design uh, his plans, uh, made it the most revolutionary act. Is it a story of progress? Was um, the experience of school children, was it better and better every um, decade even over the century or not? That's really interesting because we've just kind of finished our conclusion and it's difficult to find any conclusion other than there were periods in the life of this school when it was obviously succeeding. There were periods in the 50s when it was succeeding. And, you know, the fans of selective education will say, oh, that's, you know, that's because of grammar schools and all that. Uh, it, there were periods when it was a comprehensive, when it was succeeding. John Major's wife was a teacher there during that, during that period, incidentally. Uh, and that's when the first student goes off to university uh, and the first Oxbridge student comes along. And then there was terrible uh, problems in the school through the 80s and right into the 2000s, early 2000s. You also see in here the introduction probably of the second most revolutionary changes, which are the Baker changes, where school league tables came in when Ofsted was formed, when there were devolved budgets uh, for schools. Uh, all of that uh, mixes in as well. And you can see that by the time you get to the late 90s, and we all know this anyway, educational attainment in London, and our little school in uh, Camberwell wasn't immune from this, was, you know, 25% of kids got five good GCSEs. And then you can see that period changing around again. So, so it's been patchy. There's been successes and then there's been failures. And, and of course, the big problem, we talk about the Second World War and the Butler Act, but for those children who had to be educated through the Second World War, their lives were blighted. The, the whole school was moved out together, which I didn't know happened. I thought, you know, kids went to safer parts, but I didn't realise whole schools were set up. This school was set up in Reading during that period. And But for the kids who went through that period, it's very difficult to have a sustained education. Um, and then, you know, the school destroyed, rebuilt, opened by royalty in the 50s, 1956. All human life is there. But it has been patchy. There's been successes and failures. And I hope now, because we were very impressed by the ARC Academy, by its absolute emphasis. I mean, the school has number of kids on free school meals is 10 percentage points higher than the average. Uh, so it's still dealing with those with that population that the original school was set up to deal with, uh, you know, different cultures and backgrounds and all that, but the same kind of problems. And, you know, it is extremely aspirational and they'll get their first full set of GCSEs soon. And I, I think it's going to succeed again. I think you've got a very um, unique perspective on this subject as somebody who has been Education Secretary. From your time um, in the Cabinet and as Education Secretary, what did you find to be some of the, the biggest challenges in running a nation's school system? I suppose the, the real issue for me was how do we get to the poorest 
children? How do we get children in care was a huge issue. Doesn't happen very often. Children in care, half a percent of the child population, 20% of the prison population. This is a real problem. And so when people would tell me uh, and really good people out there in the field would say, oh, we're really making a difference to children's lives. I would always try and look down to see, well, are you getting to the real, you know, the kids who, who you cannot insulate against their chaotic lives at home. Um, and I, I think that was a problem then. It's still a problem now. We introduced some changes. Children stayed in care for longer, weren't moved about so much. We introduced the law that said that schools must take in a child in care. Because as children in care got moved around, the vacancies in schools were in the poorest schools, the worst schools, the worst performing schools. And we insisted that schools, any school, has to take in a child in care. They can't say they're full. That, I think, was was one of the real challenges. And the other one is how you deal with the teaching profession. These you know amazing men and women who are not recognized in a professional sense as well as they should have been, I believe, when we came into government. We tried to do things about that. But it's still the case that it doesn't carry the stature that a teacher does in you know countries like Finland, which is often uh, the lodestar that people are trying to follow. So we tried to change that. And how you avoid a situation where the Secretary of State is you know kind of command and control. This must be in the curriculum. That mustn't be in the curriculum. You know, Secretary of State's not the expert. Secretary of State is the expert at the politics. But it's the educationalists who matter. It's the teachers and their views and ensuring that we have a consistently high level of professionalism amongst uh, the teachers. And what about 2019? How healthy do you think the school system is today? Uh, it's much healthier than it was, I think. Uh, I think we're usually at a stage where things are going forward. And certainly when we visited the Arkell Saints Academy very impressed by the head. It's, it's leadership. It's always about leadership. And there's a excellent head teacher there. Um, we haven't yet managed to insulate schools, insulate children from the lives that they lead outside school. But, you know, what impressed me is the pastoral care in places like All Angels, which is repeated in other schools around the country. Uh, and that's like, that's one of the other interesting factors. We looked at school punishment books and we looked at the things that kids were caned for and beaten for, you know, girls and boys. And, you know, it was trivial stuff. And and so, you know, in those days, you dealt with these issues of a child having chaotic home lives or whatever by the stick. And then we saw through the First World War the, the carrot came, but the carrot was awarding medals for good attendance and stuff like this. So, you know, there was all these different ways. And of course, corporal punishment was only abolished in 1986. So now how do schools deal with that? Well, it's a completely different philosophy. You wouldn't dream of going back to beating kids the way that I was beaten when I was at school. And that the pastoral care takes a much more prominent feature. A lot of listeners will have read your memoir, This Boy, about about growing up in London in the 50s and 60s. What are some of your strongest memories of your school days particularly? Well, they're good because, you know, at Bevington School, which still exists down in uh, in North Kensington, um, 
it was a great head teacher, Mr. Gemmell. I remember things about Mr. Gemmell. Uh, I passed the 11 plus, went to a grammar school in Chelsea and didn't have much uh, uh, enthusiasm for, for education there. But one English teacher who I write about in this boy, Mr. Carlin, who noticed I read a lot and kind of directed my reading and took us kids to the theater and got me, you know, uh, writing stories and sending them off to be published, for God's sake, the drivel that I wrote. Uh, and Mr. Carly is still alive, by the way, and came to the launch of uh, this boy and doesn't remember a single bloody thing about me at all because <laughs> he's had so many thousands of kids going through. His... So I remember that, you know, but, you know, I couldn't wait to leave when I was 15. And, yeah, here's an example. I don't like harp on too much, but I was a free school mill kid and all the rest of it. And was, you know, being brought up by my sister from the age of 13. My sister was only 16. My sister, 16-year-old sister, used to come to the school open days and talk to the teachers. The teacher would say, what are you doing here? She'd say, I've come to talk for Alan. But none of my teachers knew anything about that. They talk about pastoral care. They didn't know, you know, I had no mother or father. They didn't know that my sister was struggling to keep, you know, things together. I wouldn't have dreamed of telling them that. They wouldn't have dreamed of asking. And, you know, what I remember about schools, and this also affected my approach to the, some of the things that Ken Baker did, which I think were the right things to do, by the way. Schools were horribly underfunded, but Baker's reforms, because schools were these closed institutions. There was no interaction. There was the occasional open day, and you took your report home, or you tore it up, as many of my mates did, and threw it in the bin. Parents never saw it. You know, the school, parents stay away. This is our domain in the school, and no one had a clue what was going on. No one had a clue what the odd inspection by Her Majesty's Inspector of Schools. Generally, it was, I think that was a bad thing. Why do you think that this is still an interesting or important story to tell? Why do we need to look back on the history of our schools? Oh, because it's one of the most important aspects of social history. So if you look today at the reasons why, if you get on a Jubilee line at Westminster and travel seven stops to Canning Town, your life expectancy goes down a year at every stop. Nothing to do with the tube, by the way. You get the same result you went by bus. This is why uh, epidemiologists like Sir Michael Marmot talk about these health inequalities. You know, a child born in North Kensington, as I was, we know from Grenfell Tower, which was in North Kensington, today is likely to die, a boy is likely to die 15 years earlier than a boy born in South Kensington. That's one London borough, nothing to do or very little to do with the health service. It's to do with social conditions. It's to do with housing. It's to do with employment. It's to do with education. So as long as we find those statistics obscene, as we do, everyone now identifies health inequalities, you know, we have to, we have to include education in that mix and looking like all social issues, looking at the history we can learn from the history. It's also fascinating and it's fun because everyone's had an experience of school education. We all have been through the system. And so I think it's enormous fun. This program, more than anything else, has just been fun to do. That was Alan Johnson. The Secret History of a School is currently airing every weekday at 1.45pm on BBC Radio 4. And you can catch up with previous episodes on BBC Sounds. Meanwhile, you can read a related piece on Victorian schooling in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. 
and also includes articles on the Victorian underworld, the British Empire, and Henry VI, among other things. And if you have an appetite for even more history this month, then do check out our latest special edition, on the life and times of Queen Elizabeth II. Look out for it in all good retailers now. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will return on Monday when Alexandra Churchill will be talking about George V. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.